This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series hosted by the New Books Network in association with Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network partnership provide a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Lakshata Malik, and today I'm joined by Dr. Minha T. Pham, Professor at the Graduate Program in Media Studies at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. We are in conversation about her book, Why We Can't Have Nice Things, Social Media's Influence on Fashion, Ethics, and Property, published by Duke University Press in 2022. We look forward to hearing from Dr. Farm. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. That's fabulous. I'm going to jump right in. Um, so it's it's a very fascinating book. Fascinating book. I'm going to let you lead on that. Could you tell us a little bit about the book, um, how the project came about, and what specifically about fashion ethics intrigued you in conversation with social media? Oh, great. Um, how did the project come about? As so many of my projects do, it's quite organic. Um, I am on social media a lot, probably too much. Um, And so I'm really interested because I'm a scholar of um, culture, you know, cultural studies, um, race and gender. I'm always kind of on the lookout for for those kinds of things. Right. Um, But because I'm on the Internet so much, um, I started to realize I started to see um, that that there was this this kind of phenomenon that was happening, right, that I later coined as crowdsourced intellectual property regulation. But basically what that means is that I started to see social media users and fashion brands and fashion designers um, encouraging, if not recruiting, social media users to call out um, knockoff artists, fashion knockoff artists, um, or knockoff brands, right? So, and, and oftentimes you started to see trends where only certain kinds of brands and certain kinds of um, 
knockoffs were being called out, right? And so I became very interested in the way that um, fashion, the fashion industry, fashion brands have used digital media, have used the internet in particular um, to reorganize um, the supply chain, to reorganize global fashion markets, to reorganize um, global trade and global capitalism, right? Um, this, this is what I was doing in my first book. My first book is on um, um, Asian super bloggers. I'm looking at the rise of Asian super bloggers and thinking about how this particular group of blog, what this particular group of very successful personal style bloggers can tell us about the ways that race and gender and class um, are, um, are, are, are integral to how um, fa- the fashion industry kind of reproduces itself, right? Like how does it rely on certain kinds of racialized and gender labor um, now that we're in this kind of fashion internet economy? So, so the idea, the questions of labor and fashion, ca- global fashion capitalism and the internet are really kind of the, the intersection where I'm working. Um, in this book, um, you know, I expand it to consider how other kinds of consumers, not consumers that think of themselves as bloggers, but just regular ordinary consumers are, are um, kind of being called upon it and think of themselves as being called upon to act, to um, help brands go after um, knockoffs, right? Um, and so again, this becomes this kind of consumer labor becomes a new um, sector, a new node in the supply chain, a new sector um, of workers that the fashion industry can um, extract labor from, right? And of course, all of this is done voluntarily. It's, it's unwaged labor. It's very casualized labor. Um, and so in some ways, this is a very new phenomenon. But if we look at the kind of history of fashion capitalism, right, the kind of low-wage worker or the no-wage worker, the casualization of labor, et cetera, is we're not seeing anything new. We're just seeing that digital media has allowed global capital and global fashion in particular to kind of expand the scope of its ability to to extract um, labor. Now, what's what's new about it is that it's extracting this labor under the cover of things like, um, you know, ethical fashion, right? A, a call for ethical fashion and, and, and that consumers um, feel like they have a responsibility to um, make this industry, to help this industry out, right? This trillion dollar industry, right? Um, and that's really fascinating to me. So um, I'm, I'm really interested in how, you know, the idea of work is being reorganized in the internet age, um, that how the idea specifically of fashion work is reimagined um, in you know in ways that that actually don't resolve any kinds of inequalities, but actually harden those inequalities. Mm-hmm. No, the the ideas about work are very it's it's very uh, it's very obvious in your text. It's it's intentionally there. This idea of of uncompensated yet voluntary labor which consumers but not really consumers because they're also you know producing their own capital alongside these brands 
and and so it's a it's a complicated view of all of these and i really appreciated the way that you'd structured it and i'd come to some of those questions around how you view social media behavior but before we get into that i really want to get into the first example you share in your text which is looking at um, the controversy around the originality of a particular design that forever 21 had put out and um like you said in your opening remarks around crowdsourced intellectual property regulation could you speak to that a little bit um in terms of how, because that example really sets the tone for the rest of the text it's complicated and really sets the tone yeah crowdsourced ip regulation um is so i can talk about that but i can say just kind of in broader terms right that that becomes an example for me of liberal forms of digital activism that maybe um are reprodu- reproducing the kinds of harm that they intend to um challenge right um and so this is just one example crowdsourced ip regulation crowdsourced ip regulation um this idea that social media users ordinary consumers are have a responsibility right to make the fashion market more ethical and it, and it's also it's also um rooted in a kind of growing um and already very widespread concern that consumers have and a desire that they have for ethical fashion right so it's coming it's it's very well intentioned um but what's happening is is that as consumers um are using social media platforms to call out different you know brands um or to help out brands that are are um complaining of being copied what i saw is that the ways in which um social media users understood the difference between um real fashion and fake fashion um property and impropriety creativity and copying um their kind of frameworks for understanding right what a counterfeit or a fake fashion product is was really interesting to me and it was interesting because it echoes so much of you know very traditional understandings of property right um and it doesn't and it didn't um it doesn't challenge the kinds of racial politics and the colonial histories of property right and so i i you know what's really interesting is that fashion brands call upon consumers oftentimes and 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 oftentimes consumers take it upon themselves but when fashion brands call upon them they what they say is and this is the first um example that you're you're talking about the first case study that I look at what they say is that the lawyers can't really help us here first of all the law ip law in the united states right doesn't cover much of fashion design it covers like trademarks etc but it doesn't cover the actual physical design of the product so the law doesn't help us the law is inadequate right and so so brands are calling on consumers to kind of be a stopgap for what they see as an inadequacy of the law right um the other thing that they say is that you know smaller designers say what well, like the the first case study granted clothing which is a um a knitwear brand based in Vancouver Canada what they're saying is like we we're a small brand we can't afford we can't afford to um i'm sorry we can't afford to um hire lawyers right and a bigger brand like forever 21 um is is really taking advantage of us because there's this giant international corporation um 
when when you look at the kind of discourse around create, you know, the, the ways that consumers are defining and brands are defining creativity versus copying, what you see again is, you know, this there are many assumptions being made about who a designer is, what originality looks like. Um, the first case study that I look at that opens the book um, shows that, yes, Forever 21 copied, granted, clothing sweater, right? Um, and, and everybody and social media users were up in arms about it. There was a lot of viral outrage about it. Um, but the fact that granted clothing, this Vancouver small knitwear brand, was actually copying an indigenous design didn't seem to matter to anybody, even when it was pointed out, right? And so in the one, on the one hand, this indigenous design um, gets imagined as um, a public resource, public heritage, right? Cultural heritage, because the brand is in, because Granted Clothing is in Vancouver, it was, you know, they saw it as, and they articulated it on their website. It's no longer there anymore, but they, they actually mentioned it where they would say, um, we're proud of this heritage, right? This Canadian heritage, and this is an homage, right? Um, and so even the ways that, you know, the language of homage, cultural appreciation, et cetera, um, are ways to kind of get around, you know, the kinds of clear racial and colonial biases in property logics. Um, and so, you know, and I want to be clear that the book is not that interested in arguing for, um, you know, which, which design is, designer is right or wrong. Um, what I'm really interested in is the kind of logics that allow certain kinds of um, brands to be seen or designs to be seen as fake fashion and for certain kinds of designs to be seen as original works, even when they're clearly copied, right? Um, and so in the book, I talk a lot about how um, what, what we're seeing is not a kind of argument between original originality and copying, but actually the debate really is between who is allowed to copy, right, and still be seen as an original designer and who is not allowed to copy, right? And so that there's a kind of right to copy um, um, that, that consumers, that social media users are actually um, ratifying in some way, right? Kind of in this kind of popular informal way, ratifying a right to copy for some designers, some creatives, and 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 taking it away from others. Mm-hmm. No, that is a thank you so much for going into that, and that's fabulous, and that sort of brings me to this uh, point about, and then you sort of hinted at it and briefly touched upon in the uh, previous remarks around property, right? So what is connected closely to ownership of property and how property gets socially constructed, in fact, is also related to who gets to perform the particularly creative labor, because that's the new turn in labor studies is looking at creative labor. But you're complicating this by asking, well, wait a minute, who's actually allowed to perform what is technically creative labor? Because everything's creative, right? You take a route to school and you can't figure out, uh, you know, which bus it is. So you creatively improvise and you're like, oh, I'm just going to hitchhike or something like that, right? That's a poor example. But that's everybody's doing that creative work. But at what point does that become uh, monetized and how that becomes implicated into 
um, these global structures is something that you're looking at. Um, can we can we go into that a little bit about how this property becomes attached to the bodies of separate stakeholders, like the very real questions of gender and race that are evoked? Would you go into it with the chapter on the history where you look at Foga and all of these um, different things, but, but it's a bit complicated. There are different stakeholders. People are being incited, like you said, oh, speak up and you know tell us what is going on. So in the contemporary context, how do you look at property, social, like there's a lot of that stuff. So let's, let's come back to the social construction of property and relationship to creative labor. So that's something. I mean, the history of property in the United States, um, in the United States context, the history of property is, is you know, rooted in um, native genocide, right? Is rooted in, you know, the colonialism of, of the Americas, um, dispossession, native dispossession, et cetera, right? We can't get away from that. It's rooted, the, the history of property is also rooted in the history of slavery, right? Um, in the United States, who is allowed to be considered property and who can never be considered property, right? Um, so, so there's that, and that's that's a much longer history. I, I talk about it, you know. Um, I do spend some time on those that history in the book, but it's it's you know, even that is is so is so um, cursory, right? Um, but one of the, the kind of lines of this, this history that I do track is the racialization of property and the racialization of, in, in particular, um, thieves, right? So if you have property, then you, all, you have to, if there's such a thing as property, there has to be such a thing as a thief, right? Um, if, there's, if there's property rights, there has to be someone who is violating those rights, right, by being the thief, right? And so I look... Specifically today, we when we think of um, fashion knockoffs in particular, right? Knockoff handbags, et cetera, knockoff fashion. Um, we often think of Asians, right? Um, whether it's you know Canal Street in in Chinatown in the United, uh, in New York, um, in Manhattan, or it's um, you know made in China products, made in Bangladesh, made in Vietnam products, right? We think of as you know, um, probably made under unethical conditions, whether that's, you know, bad labor conditions within that kind of workplace or whether it's made, um, um, you know, as a knockoff, right? Whether it was copied. Um, and so one of the chapters traces the history of this Asian fashion copycat, right? And it traces this idea that, you know, the idea that Asians are imagined, um, particularly in the U.S., but this is, this is you know, widespread too. Um, the idea that Asians are often imagined as not having any capacity for creativity. You know, Asians um, take instructions well. Asians work hard. Asians are good at doing repetitive labor, right? But Asians are not creative. They're not problem solvers. They're not, they don't take initiative. They're not self-expressive. They have no soul, Right. Um, so all of those kind of um, cultural stereotypes help shape this idea, help shape now um, the knockoff economy, right? The, the idea that we think of as a knockoff economy, that we, it couldn't possibly be that, you know, these, these Asians, we can't imagine them as creatives because historically 
Asians have been racialized as being without the capacity for creativity. Um, and, you know, and w- an- there's, a, there's a remark I make in the book where um, at the very same time that we're looking at, you know, China, Vietnam, um, India, and, and different places in Asia as kind of epicenters for knockoff fashion, right? At this very moment when we're looking at, you know, we're, we're racializing Asia as a pirate, you know, as pirate countries. Um, uh, the, the MoMA had that exhibit, right? In the MoMA had the exhibit where um, they looked at China's influence. This is the looking glass exhibit, right? They, they look at China's influence on Western fashion. And, and something that I say in the book is that many of the designs that we see at this, this museum exhibit um, could be considered knockoffs. They, they, they look like the original, right? Um, but nobody is using the term knockoff. Nobody is talking about counterfeit. Nobody is questioning whether or not Europeans and white American designers um, have the capacity for creativity, right? No one is talking about the U.S. or France or Italy being pirate nations, right? And so this is a great example of how these ideas about, you know, fake fashion or real fashion or original fashion and and counterfeit fashion are actually not um, objective terms, right? There's no objective quality. And and when, when, when we... Um, when brands, when the fashion industry, or when, and some fashion IP lawyers, when they talk about expanding um, intellectual property protections to include fashion, there's always a kind of list, a laundry list of, okay, these are the criteria, right, that we would use to determine whether something is a knockoff or not, um, which suggests that there, that fake fact, that there's like objective qualities that make a fashion design fake or real or original or or um, not a counterfeit. Um, in fact, there's not, right? These are, these are kind of racial and um, cultural biases that we bring to designs um, that, that reinforce, you know, higher racial hierarchies, but also um, geoeconomic hierarchies between different regions, the global north, the global south, et cetera. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. At Evernorth Health Services... We believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Right. No, that, thank you for that. Um, the other question, and I'm looking at the list of questions that I have, and it, and it may be overkill at this point, but, and, 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 and the following questions will look at social media in specific, because that's such a huge 
site through which you operate um one of the things that you say i think earlier on is 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 you don't call what is happening on social media it's a larger phenomenon around branding you 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 stop yourself from from calling it uh, or you say the term social media shaming and an outburst and stuff like that and you're not interested in calling it that right and and i i assume that has to relate i i in my mind it relates to the idea of uncompensated voluntarily performed labor that you were talking about and it's pertinent to get into platform capitalism and all sorts of people are making money off of this <laughs> this this outrage or shaming so i think what you do is through you you really highlight look the platform is not absent from from all of it. it's not a neutral space so yeah i just wanted to get into some of that of why we look at these discourses and and what is the danger of just calling them discourses that are happening yeah um, yeah uh, a lot of articles um that have focused on this call it social media shaming or cancel culture right it's part of that kind of um idea or that it it gets um kind of folded into that discourse right um i I think that it's part of it. I do I think that it's part of it, but I think that social media outrage or social media shaming um is an inadequate term precisely for the reasons that you mentioned, right? First of all, it suggests it it doesn't it doesn't highlight enough, it doesn't emphasize enough that these are value producing activities, right? It, they're value producing, which is to say they're it's work, right? It's uncompensated work. It's unremunerated work, but it is work because it produces value and it produces all kinds of value. It produces commercial value, but it also produces consumer values, right? Around taste and what even is ethical fashion, right? So that, that's one reason that I think that the term social media outrage is inadequate. The other reason that I think it's inadequate, and again, you've, you've already mentioned this, is that it, it doesn't take seriously enough the social media, right? It doesn't take seriously enough the way that social media tools and um, sites aren't just, um, they're, they're not just, they're not just the thing that's being used to call out knockoff brands, right? It's not just the thing that's being used, but actually that, that social media becomes the, the thing that's being struggled over, Right. And so what you have a lot is, is that right now the, the concern is that um, fashion knockoffs are, you know, just exploding everywhere precisely because the wrong people have access to social media. That is to say, you know, Chinese factories, for example, have too much access to social media. They can look at a, um, a video of a, of a um, runway show. Right. And zoom in 300, 500 percent. And they can, um, um, you know, copy a design without ever, you know, without ever having it in their possession, right? And so that it isn't just that these, these, um, you know, Asian fashion copycats are kind of culturally um, inclined, right, to copy because they don't have the, you know, creative, the creative capacity. But the other problem is, is that these Asian copycats have a technical skill, right? They have this, this kind of technical skill without the, the ethical um, compass, right, to copy, right? So there's a, there's a lack. There's um, a kind of undeveloped. These aren't just undeveloped countries or developing countries, but there's a kind of underdeveloped sense of 
ethics, morality, an underdeveloped sense of um, underdeveloped appreciation for property, individual property. Um, and, and so all these, all these kinds of stereotypes kind of come together to, to create the kind of discourse that we're seeing now about, um, about, about knockoff fashion, but it's also so normalized that ordinary social media users who have no training um, and have no background in thinking about the politics of property or the history of property, um, all of this makes sense to them, right? Because these cultural stereotypes are so widespread and so pervasive that, that um, the idea that, oh, probably, you know, something made in Asia, especially if it's expensive, is going to be a knockoff. Probably that makes sense, right? It fits, it, it fits all kinds of stereotypes that are deeply held and deeply rooted um, in, in many cultures, but particularly in the United States. No, that's totally right. And all of this, while uh, the U.S. especially has the worst track record for workers' right protections, and we have, you see, unions forming everywhere. And this is a point you bring up even in your, even the first, first example. It was, the garment was in fact produced, <laughs> was probably produced in the U.S. where the, U- the Forever 21 uh, factory is, <laughs> which is so interesting. So this burden of unethical consumption as well as production being associated with largely Asian bodies and appropriated from... uh, Absolutely. The racialization of piracy, right? And particularly the Asianization of piracy um, is something that is is not just confined to fashion and certainly not just confined to this moment, but that this moment, um, but that social media and digital media is, is creating kind of new, is expanding that, that discourse for sure, is expanding these stereotypes, but is also um, allowing these stereotypes to circulate in, you know, faster and wider than they had in the past. Um, but it's, you know, it's really fascinating to me, this, this idea that there was a line, um, there was a quote that someone said, I think it was in the first case study where the designer said, you know, these, these Forever 21 scouring the internet, right? And like, what does it mean to scour the internet? Obviously, what he means is that they're misusing the internet in some way, right? That, that, they're, um, that they're misusing, they're not just misusing the fashion, the design, they're misusing the internet. And so again, you see these kinds of um, intersections of, you know, Asians, the stereotype with Asians with high skill, technical skill, but no sense of ethics and certainly no creativity kind of come together in this way that that um, becomes part of the common sense about knockoff fashion, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a very important point, and I think you've highlighted that with with a lot of importance. And the other thing that I want to get into from this is, of course, you highlight. Um, this, this idea of looking and being able to zoom in, I found it so fascinating and being able to look, oh, look, people have access to social media. They're able to like look at these 360 whatever runway shows where you can, you know, with, with museums, you have access to all sorts of things. But what is also happening and you look at some of the critique that social media as a platform is able to enable that's a weird thing to say, but it's, it's it provides also that space for uh, not just looking at, but looking back, which I found so interesting. And you highlighted in, you know, the Diet Prada, but also the Thai rainbow bag is, is precisely what that is. 
And of course, it's with caveats because it's not, you know, it's also buying into some of those logics, but also critiquing it. But it's a it's a very complicated looking back, which I found so interesting and, and just wanted you to sort of go into some of the motivation behind you know not not just that social media is all bad in terms of you know for the brands to manipulate but there's something quite feral about the way in which uh, instant messaging and instant commenting and just virality of certain things goes up it's it's, it's a precarious space for even the brands to handle right. and what that allows for and what that doesn't yeah yeah so the case study you're talking about um, some Thai social media users, social media users in Thailand, um, are calling out Balenciaga for for a tote bag that they see on the runway, um, a tote bag that looks a lot like kind of you know tote bags that can be found in Thailand. Um, this is a great example. Social media is is not just a tool, right? It's the very site of struggle over these ideas, right? Of, of, you know, creativity versus copying. Um, and so this is an example of that. And, and you know, as you point out, um, the, the Thai consumers are absolutely buying into certain ideas about um, intellectual property and, and the importance of, of, you know, claiming anything as property, claiming any design as property. Um, they do it from a very different vantage point than say Western consumers, than say um, Western brands, certainly, right? But but these again, these ideas are are global at this point. The ideas that that um, you know we can we can um, that the kind of pro- the logics of intellectual property, Western intellectual property logics, have become very global, and we see these Thai consumers kind of embracing some of it. Um, and so there's you know these kinds of intellectual crowdsource intellectual property regulation from below, as I call it, right? If from the global South or from consumers that are in the periphery of um, global fashion, who live in the periphery of global fashion, um, don't guarantee any kind of economic or social justice, right? Um, but what they do do, what these kinds of moments, these incidents do do, is that they show us that Western, um, the Western property regime, right? Western intellectual property logics are in fact not fixed, are not secure, can be destabilized, um, right? And so it shows that there's, that, you know, there's cracks in the wall, right? And, and that's really important. Um, it also, for a moment, the Thai um, consumers, the Thai social media users, for a moment and in very limited ways, end up reversing the kind of relationship between the, the um, creative West and the copycat, you know, East, right? And so they do reverse that. They do upend that in limited ways. Um, what I also love about this story is that um, the Balenciaga bag actually becomes devalued, right? Because the Thai consumers somehow have managed to turn the, their memes, the memes that they're creating to call it Balenciaga, these are going viral now, right? They've, they've spread beyond Thailand. They're going viral. And so Balenciaga is now dealing with a bad PR problem. But as it's dealing with a bad PR problem, the price, the, the actual price of the Thai bag increases, right? I think like 
you know, threefold, which is just amazing. And and so the tie bag goes from, I don't remember, like a dollar to three US dollars, right? The equivalent of like a dollar to three US dollars or something like that. Um, but the fact that that there was this kind of increase shows, again, it reminds us again that the work that these social media watchdogs are doing is in fact work. It's value producing work. Um, but that also that that in very limited ways that the global economy, that consumers are influencing um, global markets and global economies and the flow of all kinds of capital, right? For very limited, in limited ways, they're reversing that flow from um, the, you know, from the West now back to the, to the, to the East. And that's fascinating to me. Yeah, no, that was absolutely such a fascinating example. And what, uh, and this is going to be slightly tangential, but what that made me think of is this scene from Devil Wears Prada and, and Miranda Priestley, which is uh, uh, Meryl Streep's character, is lecturing her assistant and, and is telling her, oh, you are laughing at this belt. And she lists out this, this entire like trail through which fashion percolates down from high-end runway shows to department shores, uh, stores to knockoffs to the streets of wherever she picked it up from. And then she lists out that, oh, actually you're wearing whatever was picked out for you by me and people like me. But what the Thai Rainbow Pack does is like, well, it's not as simple. Actually, people may have been already living in those spaces. And what these editors and magazines and, and brands do is, is also flip stuff, right? So it's not as top down as one might think. It's actually a little more complicated. And I love that story so much. And it, it really just hits the nail on the head. And what you said about like devalue work that devalues was also something I hadn't thought of that until you said it right now. But the work is just not does not just produce value; it also produces devalue or devalues something as well. Like that's the potential that work has to, which is quite fascinating to think about. Like work that is being done that actually ruptures capitalist uh, uh, flows of productivity. Yes, yes, but also again because this value producing work is not remunerated, um, the work itself is already devalued, right? The very work that consumers are doing, um, you know, the work that they're doing for free for, again, like a $3 trillion global industry, right? The, the ways in which consumers have come to feel protective over a $3 trillion industry is um, fascinating, but also a little bit alarming, Right. Um, so the work that is being done is devalued. But this is again, this is not new to social media. Right. Um, that fashion, the global fashion industry has always relied on and continues to rely on um, and profit from the devalue, you know, the devaluation of certain kinds of labor. Right. Particularly, for example, whether it's garment workers, models, um, you know, and so on, right? Kind of rank and file fashion worker, right? It's always relied on that. And, and again, it, you know, it, it profits from the precarity of so much fashion work, right? Which now we can include consumer labor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's absolutely uh, correct. And, and there was, I mean, I'm going to do like a short thing because I, I don't want to keep you over time. And I have a couple of questions, just, just one short uh, uh, sort of question around method and, and 
which I thought was really interesting. The fact that all of these examples are seemingly organically coming at you. Like you said, use use social media and the same with me. Honestly, I picked out my research site based on how much I was using social media and how much like makeup artists were coming at me. (laughs) It felt like almost, it felt like they picked me instead of me picking. So how much of your own personal, uh, yeah, this, this, something that you were already doing that you can, you know, draw a project out of. And also, yeah, this this sort of blurring of, of personal um, curiosity at, or, or whatever consumption it may be called and professional, which I find so fascinating. I mean, I think that anyone who does research on any aspect of social media, right? And, and again, social media is just this, very small term for a huge field, right? And, you know, um, a huge, diverse, um, heterogeneous field, right? But anyone who does research on social media, I think in some ways is already what we might call a participant observer, right? So already there's, that's happening. Um, My training is in structural analysis. My training is in, you know, cultural studies, like I said. Um, My training is in um, cultural economy, Right. And so that's that's kind of where my training comes from. But just in doing my research, um, I have become a participant observer. I have become, um, you know, the first book grew out of um, my experience as a blogger. I was never a style blogger. I was never a fashion blogger, but I had a, a research blog that I was um, working with, um, working on with um, a colleague and friend, Mimi Nguyen. Um, But as we were doing this, as we were producing the content for this blog, I started becoming very interested in my own practices as as an academic blogger, but also um, looking at how other Asian women and other um, Asian men and women would um, use their own personal blogs, right, to promote brands, et cetera, to promote their own style, identity, et cetera. And so a lot of it is me looking at, like, how am I interacting with social media? How am I interacting with, you know, whether it's the blogging platforms or how I'm even responding to, for example, um, you know, Diet Prada's posts, right? Or how I'm responding to the, um, the, the latest kind of, um, fashion trial by social media, how I'm, how I'm responding to it and also what I'm seeing, right? So there is, in some ways, there's also a lot of kind of discourse analysis. There's a lot of um, um, representational analysis too, I think, right? Um, the ways that in which certain um, people are representing themselves as ethical consumers, shaming other consumers who might have bought, you know, um, Forever 21, for example, um, or the even what, you know, what people call the performativity, right, of social media, where like the, the promise, the promise to boycott fast fashion and the promise to boycott certain brands or to only buy other, you know, luxury brands, um, ethical fashion. And so kind of like the, the subtextual narrative in my book is that a lot of the popular understandings of what ethical fashion is or how to go about making fashion more ethical, I think is based on some real myths, 
about um, what, for example, intellectual property is, right? Intellectual property is concerned with economics. It's not concerned, and it's not certainly not driven by ethical considerations for um, unequal power, right? That is not what intellectual property does or is interested in doing. And yet we call on, you know, in these fashion trials by social media, we call on intellectual property and we assume that intellectual property, if not the law, at least its logics, are going to somehow make the market more ethical, right? And so then even the idea of ethics, right, the idea of what is ethical becomes a very U.S.-centered but also very Western kind of concept that gets exported um, and, and circulates through ethical fashion movements, whether it's about, you know, knockoff fashion or whether it's about sustainability, et cetera, right? These concepts, sustainability, ethical fashion, are very much Western-based um, 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 but also, you know, very U.S. and Eurocentric in a lot of ways. And I don't, you know, and it's, it's, it's frustrating to me, to be honest, that um, so much of sustainable fashion, ethical fashion movements um, are reproducing a lot of kind of Western notions of what, what life, what creativity, what um, health, what safety means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, uh, yeah, I would strongly recommend to all of the listeners to go out and get the book because this is something so pertinent that we're dealing with today, right now, and also something that we have been somehow dealing with. It's current as well as very much rooted in history. It's the history you touch on in your text. I'm very curious to know what your next project is, as I'm sure at the end of the interview, uh, all of the other listeners are. So could you tell us what you're working on now and what we can expect? Um, You know, that's, that's, as you know, because you're working on your dissertation, that's both a great question and a terrible question. Um, I have a lot of ideas that I'm working on. Um, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about um, the supply chain. I'm thinking very closely about the supply chain and how um, the pandemic, um, multiple pandemics have impacted the supply chain. So I've written some articles on this. Whether or not it becomes a book is something that I'm thinking about. Um, I'm also really interested in the kind of aestheticization of politics around sustainable fashion and ethical fashion. And and so something about like the ways in which um, um, influencers right, can produce an identity um, and produce a platform in which they become the leading voices of sustainable fashion, the sustainable movement, et cetera. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm kind of wondering, like, what's behind the screen, right? Like, the the content looks good, but what's behind there? And so thinking about the kind of aestheticization of politics. I'm also really interested in um, the ways in which recognize labor unions, particularly in Southeast Asia and South Asia, recognize labor un- garment labor unions, um, maybe collaborate um, with state powers, right? And so that we often, we think of, un- you know, we, we're pro-union, we want garment workers to unionize, we want to um, support garment workers to unionize, but unions themselves are political, they're not neutral, Right. 
um, they're political, their, their formation is political, and the unions that the unions and the union representatives oftentimes that are allowed to have a voice and a platform are oftentimes um, the ones that are willing to work with the factory manager, are willing to work with the client, which is to say the, the fashion, the Western fashion brand, willing to work with the state, right? And so in some ways, there's kind of a, the ways in which, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion programs in the United States have become defanged, right, in a lot of ways, because they've become kind of um, window dressing. I'm wondering about how formal unions and the kind of internationally recognized unions in Southeast Asia, uh, in the Southeast Asian garment industries, um, are possibly harming garment workers who are, um, who, who, like the most vulnerable garment workers, right? So I'm thinking about the garment workers that are um, not even on the, the payroll, right? Who are home workers, who are, um, you know, et cetera. So, so there's, there's a lot of ideas um, that I'm, I'm interested in, but what will happen with any of these ideas is anybody's guess at this point. No, all of those sound fascinating. I'll be looking forward to whatever next, whether it's an article or any kind of uh, 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 production of knowledge that comes out. I'll be looking out for that. And I'm sure others uh, will too. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Farm, for joining us and for all of these insights. It was truly fascinating. And I genuinely mean that uh, uh, to speak with you. Once again, I am Lakshata Malik. This discussion of why we can't have nice things published by Duke University Press in 2022 has been brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab in the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you so much for listening and go out and get that book. <laughs>